0: To join SelfWealth now, use the link in your podcast player or head to selfwealth.com.au and use the coupon code RASK during sign-up. Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. Nish, welcome back to the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me on. It's always a bit of fun. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into biotechnology companies, globally speaking. So, companies that are often neglected, and I've got to be honest, by me too, because I often look at biotech and I think, wow, that's like well outside my circle of competence as an individual investor. But there are certain reasons why, as an investor who uses ETFs to get exposure to particular thematics, and I mean, the last... 12 to 18 months globally has been um, a big call to action for this to use a diversified exposure to get that in your portfolio. So, to get exposure to FDA trials in the US, to get exposure to companies that are producing vaccines or other types of solutions to problems that are biological in nature or genetics. You know, these are areas that have really come in vogue for maybe the wrong reasons, but. Hey, we'll leave that aside for now. In terms of the CURE ETF, CURE, right, on the ASX, can you just tell us a little bit about it and what it provides exposure to? Because people often kind of lump it in with healthcare.
1: Yeah, definitely. So the CURE ETF, so the ETF Securities S&P Biotech ETF, it provides exposure to the US biotech sector. So that's sort of the, the main exposure that you've got, you get exposure to. So that is the S&P Biotechnology Select Index, so an ETF tracks an index. That's um, you know it's a way for investors to get exposure to the underlying and that's what the ETF is a vehicle for. The index that we're tracking for Cure is that that biotechnology index run by S&P. So this gives you exposure to US companies. Now in terms of the number of holdings it's currently over I believe it's right now about 190 stocks within the portfolio. We've seen a significant increase in the number of stocks within the portfolio over the past 12 to 18 months. I think the biotech industry in itself has continually evolved and grown significantly over the past five, 10 years from where it was, there was really no biotech industry 30 years ago, uh, to to put it bluntly. So you're really seeing a, a really rapid evolution of the space, but for investors, when they're thinking about what is the actual underlying exposure, it's 190 names, in what is classified as the biotech industry, so within healthcare, you have different industry groups, and this particular ETF is just focusing on biotechnology.
0: Mm. So, one of the things that investors often come up against with these types of companies is that trying to predict the outcomes of trials is actually, like I would say, close to impossible because you effectively have no better insight than the people that are conducting the trials, and that's the reason that the trials are conducted in the first place. So. It gets pretty difficult, and as you know, you see, you know, there's one born every minute, and um, people often fall into the trap of thinking, "Oh, well, this is the this is the problem they're solving, um, this is the drug, and it sounds great that you're solving a you want to solve this hugely important problem, but the reality is that a lot of products, a lot of you know, solutions don't go through to stage three trials, let alone pass those, so. Taking this as a whole, though, mate, like we don't also we also don't have that much exposure to this as Australian investors. A lot of the time, when people think of biotech or at least biopharmaceuticals, they instantly jump to CSL because that's kind of our one and maybe not our only, but it's pretty much one and only global success story, which is kind of limiting p- for portfolios. So, you, by default, you have to look abroad if you want exposure to these things. You know, During COVID, I found myself Googling um, CSL because I obviously don't know much about it. I was like, well, CSL, maybe they have a solution to this, this issue or can assist in some way. And it just turns out that that wasn't the case because that's not their speciality, or at least it wasn't at the time. So getting exposed to these companies really necessitates a global perspective, or at least US perspective in this case. So we know how many companies are in there. I was interested in this because if I'm not mistaken, is it an average market cap of around about 2.1 billion or two say just around $2 billion? I think that was in the latest fact sheet.
1: So the average market cap as at the end of April is 6.3 billion US.
0: Oh 6.3 billion. Yeah, right.
1: it's 6.3 billion US. But I guess wanted to take it back a little bit. So I don't think many people know of many biotech names. They know of Moderna purely because of COVID-19 and the success they've had with their vaccine development in that particular space. A lot of people wouldn't know of Moderna two years ago. If you were interested in this space, you would have known about it. I think biotech is a bit of a an unknown. So everyone knows healthcare, but biotech is really the growth driver of the healthcare industry. What does cover biotech? And I think it'd just be good to explain to listeners what that is. So it's biological drug. So a biological drug is in the form of a protein or a peptide. So it has a different working mechanism to a chemical drug or a pharma drug, which is Traditionally, now most drugs that are developed are biological drugs. They're using f- some form of biological process in the drug development. So most drug development and innovation is happening within the biotech industry. Vaccines—we've all seen that. Majority of the COVID nineteen vaccines are being created by biotech companies, or if it's being created by Pfizer or an AstraZeneca. It's from their biotech arm that they've recently acquired biotech companies within their bigger conglomerate of Pfizer and um, AstraZeneca. You also have things like immunotherapy, gene therapy, and orphan drugs. So an interesting one is the orphan drugs is many there are many rare diseases. Now, what is an orphan or a rare disease or an orphan drug development? It's when it's affecting a very minority population within the developed market. It doesn't necessarily mean that that particular disease is not impacting develop, developing and emerging markets and the developing world, but an orphan drug really, from a lot of larger pharma companies, also it's just not worth me, you know, pursuing and trying to develop a vaccine or a treatment for this, so they don't. So you see a lot of um, work happening by biotech companies really focusing on particular orphan and rare diseases. And then you also got the genetic editing side, so genetic engineering. So using the CRISPR editing, gene editing technology. It's funny, you speak to a lot of people around the use of technology and they sort of sometimes take a step back in terms of they get a bit fearful on gene editing. I think what we need to understand is we use our iPhones because we've adopted technology. Or we use smartphones because we're open to the fact that technology can help us become more efficient, can give us access and benefits that we wouldn't have had 30 years ago. The technology advancements that we've seen within the biotech space, within gene editing, that's just only going to help us down the line to create treatments for chemo or to create for rheumatoid arthritis. So again, people think biotech is just COVID. It's not. It's more than COVID-19. It's going to be here for many decades to come. And whilst hopefully COVID won't be here for many decades to come.
0: So, you know, I think I was pretty aware of some of the companies like Moderna beforehand, just because of the kind of fragmentation of the industry and how that was being consolidated by some of the larger players in the space to acquire IP, particularly as... You know, patent protection and, and all those type of intellectual property rights rolled off for a majority of, well, not majority, but a, a substantial amount of drugs, you know, over, over the last 20 to 50 years. These companies have gone in search of other opportunities and, and kind of moved further down the risk curve or further up, depending on how you think about it. Moderna is an interesting company because I've got to be honest, I, I don't know a lot about the science behind it, but I was just looking at some of the numbers. And what was striking to me is just how much it's going to benefit from. COVID. Like we all know it's a huge issue, obviously. But I'm um, just looking at some Morningstar data. They expect $19 billion of COVID-19 vaccine sales in 2021, $17 billion in 2022. And I think that's just because this has effectively come out of nowhere, right? In terms of they had one of the most rapid product uh, trials and, and, and I guess push to commercial stage of any biotech ever, I believe. So um, a fascinating story in itself. I don't know if you know much about Moderna, mate, or if you have anything to share there. But I thought I thought it was just a really interesting business with the mRNA program and vaccines that are rolling out. Um, I think they have more in the pipeline, which is interesting. And I think they're looking now. We're recording this in late May, early June. And I think they've got more to come in terms of COVID. So a really interesting business.
1: But I, I think I think it comes to that point. It's um, you know for a lot of investors, and reason why we're probably seeing interest in ETFs such as Cure and other things like that is. You've generally seen a lot of people know Netflix and they understand the concept of what Netflix does and they can, they have a bit more of, they're more in tune with with sort of the business of Netflix and they therefore can make a decision, do they want to buy Netflix or not? Um, Woolworths is another example, Kohl's or, you know, even Afterpay to some extent, they've sort of uh, understanding of the business model. Do people really understand nucleoside modified mRNA as in the coronavirus vaccine and everything that goes into it? Do they understand? You know, you talked about the patent cliff. So generally patents run for 20 years. Companies then have to sort of either sell that patent before it goes off, because as soon as a patent is no longer valid, you have a lot of the generic drug companies um, and there's some quite big ones such as Dr. Ready in, in India that produce generic drugs. And so they pretty much can buy a lot. They basically wait for the patents to expire and they basically generically produce these drugs and sell them for quite cheap. You've also got that whole FDA approval process. I think, you know, I don't know, you know, the intricacies around Moderna itself. And I'm not a biotechnologist in any way, shape or form. But what I can see is COVID-19 has created a bit of a magnifying glass in the biotech industry. So you're seeing greater speed of... Um, drug developments and drug trials, efficiencies being created in red tape. What, what I found interesting was when looking at a lot of previous vaccine developments and we talk about the FDA approval. So the FDA is the US Federal Drug Authority. So they're seen as a gold standard around the world in terms of drug trials and drug development and drug approval. It's why for us, we focus this ETF just on the US because majority of biotech companies base themselves out of the US so that they can go through that FDA drug approval process. Most drugs that get an FDA approval generally are getting, you know, quicker approvals from the European drug authorities or the Australian drug authorities, etc. To get a drug through the FDA approval costs about, on average, the estimates were about US $2.1 billion US dollars. So that's quite interesting. And then the success of those drug developments, about 14% in terms of people that get through to the FDA approval. You have a lot of people that fail in that phase one and phase two. And phase two is when they, or phase three, sorry, is when they start to begin animal and human testing. So one thing that COVID's done is governments were very quick to say, well, we need to get vaccine development. They were supportive of and pumping a lot of money into this area. That's why we've seen sort of really quick drug developments, drug approvals. You've seen companies that have gone from, you mentioned, what, 20 billion US dollars in, in, in vaccine sales. That's just, you know, it's unbelievable. But it also shows you when attention and focus is applied to certain areas, what can be done as well.
0: Yeah, it's super exciting. I was just reading as you are saying that. And so Pfizer said in a, one of their recent updates that their future variants for the vaccines um, may only need um, 100 days until regulatory authorization. So if you think about that, I remember at the beginning of COVID, I was talking to an ED nurse and he was saying, you know, it's going to take years for any type of vaccine to come around. But then I guess the speed of innovation is unbelievable, like what humans can get done as a collective when they need to. I guess the thing is, you gave it the title of The Patent Cliff, which we've known about for a while. The Patent Cliff is effectively, yeah, just a lot of the you know, drugs, early stage drugs that were important. As the, the the biotech space came on, a lot of those drugs have been, you know, rolled out, and a lot of those patents are now slowly wearing thin. And um, I believe it was Moderna that came out and effectively said, "Listen, during COVID, we're not actually going to, you know, be really aggressive in enforcing our patents if other companies want to help roll this out." But they haven't seen anyone, at least in the latest update that I read hadn't seen anyone any companies trying to do that and i think you know we talk about the australian government being pretty slow in terms of getting its its rollout underway i think one of the things is that there is an enormous amount of um, barriers here in terms of production and distribution especially if you have to chill vaccines and keep them cold and um, administer them in certain ways it can be actually very difficult to replicate that at scale especially at a global scale and i think the incumbents here have definitely benefited from that and moderna is one of those so I think that's an interesting one to call out, and it'll be interesting over the next few months, you know, between June and July, to see how particularly the UK, European, and even the US governments think about the intellectual property rights and the protection that's applied to those, particularly around COVID nineteen. Uh, as we unfortunately, as we record this, we're seeing huge spikes in um, India and Brazil, which are countries that need um, vaccine rollouts and, and need protection. Um, unfortunately, those are the countries that tend not to have the ability to pay. Um, as much as, say, developed countries. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to companies like Moderna in terms of their their moat and their defensibility. But for now, the cash flow is rolling in and it's rolling in thick and fast.
1: I, I think that what you may find with companies like Moderna, with com- companies like um, BioNTech and um, sort of other larger biotech companies, you may find that they're not only producing COVID-19 vaccines, they're doing a lot more than that. So, you know, an example there and is a company, Gilead Sciences. Um, you know, this particular company, it's got its remdesivir. So that's a drug that it's always had. It was originally done to treat Ebola. They found that it was effective to help with the treatment, not um, curing, but the treatment of COVID nineteen patients. But they're also developed a new drug called, and I am going to get this wrong, but it's I think it's a uh, filgotinib. Um, and it's used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. So once that drug is approved, they may see, you know, another new market. They've also got drugs working in sort of the HIV area. So sort of from an a, a immunotherapy perspective. So you don't just have companies such as Moderna or Gilead like just focusing on COVID-19 vaccine. They've probably been a bit more lax. They, as you said, they're seeing the money roll through, but they're, they're much larger. And then you've got companies within the biotech space that are literally just focusing on one drug. And that's where you start to see the real sort of ebbs and flows in the biotech industry. It, it can be quite a volatile space if you look at it at a single stock level. I'll, I'll give you an example there. Novavax, it saw some success in its um, COVID-19 vaccine. Its share price jumped 1,677% over nine months after the success of one of its vaccine candidates that it had. But then on the other side, there's an Australian company, Factor Therapeutics. Now, they look at um, wound dressing treatments. They fell 97% in one day after one of its wound dressing treatments was found to be ineffective. So you sometimes within some of these companies, especially if they're very if they're relatively small, they're focusing on one or two particular drug development trials or drugs that they're looking at, the outcome of those clinical trials is so binary that it can potentially you know, be the success or the death of, of some of these stocks.
0: Mm. My, my mind's going back to Sirtex Medical, if you know that one, um, quite a few years ago. I think that's been in the, the media recently or at least its former CEO has for all the wrong reasons. That effectively halved in a day and then kept on falling not long after that. And then more recently in 2020, I've got the prices in front of me right now, Mizo Blast, which is on the ASX MSB, it went from over five dollars a share last year, it's middle twenty twenty or late twenty twenty, to around a dollar ninety at the time of recording. So June 2021. These well, not necessarily one trick ponies, but they're businesses that hinge on these, you know, uncertain outcomes. And like you said, they can be binary. And it's a shame. Um, obviously, it's a shame that when things don't work out, but that's such is the nature of these this industry. And I think that's, again, why bundling them together makes a lot of sense. Okay, so as we come to the back end of this shorter podcast, man, how do people tend to use the CURE ETF? Because I could see it being a tactical asset allocation decision, so a TAA, or as an SAA, if you um, necessarily want exposure, maybe as a smaller part of a core holding uh, to the global health test, uh, healthcare sector, but in particular biotech. How, how do people use it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's exactly how you've described it. So for clients that are a bit uh, a sort of down the line on, on the risk curve, they're willing to take a bit more risk, a bit more growth orientated within their portfolios. This particular ETF cure can be used within that sort of SAA perspective. So it's like the strategic allocation. It replaces healthcare in a way. So if I looked at some of the performance, you know, going back so this is to the end of April, you know, over one year, the ETF cure returned 23.7%. The S&P global 1200 healthcare index, which is generally the, the index of some of the biggest broader broadest healthcare ETFs track returned 0.8%. Um, so for, for people that want to take that exposure on healthcare and want the driver of healthcare, that's what we can see Cure being used from a strategic perspective. The other side of it that you mentioned is the more tactical, I call it the tilt thematic. So people using something like a, a, this particular ETF purely from that short to medium term, they have a belief, okay, we're seeing success or focus on biotechnology in the current period. This is where they can probably take exposure to it. It's an easier way. And it's also, this is the other thing you mentioned, some of the individual stocks we talked about. People can overweight to those stocks, but it's a lot of single stock risk if you're trying to find the winner in this space, which is why we sometimes say, you know, don't buy the winner or loser, buy the theme, buy the sector. It's easier. It's a much more diversified, safer approach to getting the exposure.
0: Yeah, it's pretty low cost exposure, if I'm honest. I think it's 45 base points, 45 bips. Is that right?
1: Yeah, so 0.45% is is the cost to break that down, I think on a thousand dollar exposure, it is roughly around four dollars fifty per
0: year. Yeah, which is yeah, yeah, it's not a lot of money. Yeah, and uh, maybe I'll just throw a bit of caution out there. It's just um, when we do talk about returns, and I know, can just mention some there. Just just be mindful of the environment. Like these are one year returns. We you have to be mindful that. We always say past performance is not indicative of future performance, and we are talking about small a smaller slice of a portfolio. So you could bun. I, I imagine people could even bundle this with another healthcare exposure that maybe isn't so targeted or has some sort of variant focus, and then use this as, like you said, as a tilt or as a as a position in the SAA, the core of a portfolio. Mate, I think this is a really good primer on using something like ETF, uh, the CURE ETF, and getting that exposure to biotech for investors in Australia who are wondering. You know all this COVID stuff surely there's companies that are solving these important problems and how can i benefit i think this is a really good conversation a really good kickstarter so people can find out more of you know what's actually inside the etf do a bit more research read some articles on the etf securities website right
1: yeah definitely so etfsecurities.com.au if you go to products and under products you click on cure uh, the biotech etf you can find a whole raft of information including investment cases, small videos, explainers, et cetera. And just on your point, so it it is more volatile, which is why we sometimes say with with ETFs such as this that are very much looking at innovative areas and growth areas, it's a long-term play. So over 10 years, the index in Australian dollar terms has returned 22.6% to the end of April. The global healthcare 1200 index that I was referring to earlier has returned 16.1% over 10 years. So yes, you've seen some outperformance, but there's inherently more volatility. So on a day-to-day basis or a month-to-month basis, this, this index and the ETF as a result will move a bit more wildly. But that's the nature of the space that you're looking at. Over the long term, if you stay invested, I think that's the hard part. People try to time these areas. It's very hard to time your entry and exit into growth markets and into growth spaces. Sometimes it's better to be invested than to not be invested, but it's also, you know, just t- take that. You know, th- there's some caution there in terms of timing versus, you know, staying in for the long term and not looking at it every day.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's good advice for any type of investing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, great, Kinish, mate. Thanks for taking the time to to join us on the podcast. Really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you for having me. Cheers on.